Today on The Breakdown, there was a time not long ago that the names Peter Eastgate and Ilary Sahamas would send fear into the veins of their opponents. Shivers would run down people's heels, not their backs, their heels, because it was already so low. People were afraid of these guys, especially Sahamas. Nowadays, we don't really hear from those guys anymore. At least we don't see them. They're probably playing in some quiet cash game somewhere or just living off their riches. But it wasn't that long ago that they played a hand against each other where a lot of money went in. A surprising amount of money went in. Hundreds of thousands of dollars went into this pot. And, well, I mean, I don't know, man. I just don't know. Ilari Saham is unusual. A lot of people would say ahead of his time, probably far ahead of his time. Is this, is this like streets ahead, this play, or is this way, 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 way streets behind? We're going to get into it right now on The Breakdown with Grant Dennison and Jonathan Lev. I don't think it's necessarily fair to put Peter Eastgate and Zygmunt in the same category of fear induction. Zygmunt was one of the best high-stakes cash game players in the world, and Eastgate happened to be one of the hundreds of guys who were capable of winning the main event who actually had the run that made him win the main event, didn't really have any success outside of that. Just a guy who's like good enough at tournaments to win the main event and then subsequently got to play in higher stakes games, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much right. I mean, he was he, I think he was like a successful cash game pro and stuff like that. But yeah, I think you're right. Um, no, Eastgate, I don't think really there was a lot of fear in terms of, like like an example is even like so after Eastgate won, they were playing high stakes poker and the classic Tom Dwan hand with the queen 10 happened, which was what the right. 10 deuce deuce and Eastgate had like three deuce or something like that. Four deuce. Yeah. Right. And like Tom knew he could get Eastgate to fold the deuce. Basically, he was like almost yep. sure of it and was right. And I'm not saying Eastgate shouldn't have folded that deuce down, puts him in a really tough position. But Eastgate has said later, like, you know, he bought in for too much and he like put himself in all these weird spots. And the fact that he didn't understand how much to buy in for against this level of opponent says like a lot about what kind of player he was, right? And who he was, which is fine. But like, you know, he made a mistake. But like that's it. Like Duan would never make that mistake. Galfon would never make that mistake. Sahamas would right. never make. They they'd buy in for however much they bought in for. They'd feel great about it, and they would be able to play those stacks appropriately. Yeah, and I don't think Duan would have made that play against Zygmunt probably because Zygmunt would just be like, "Yeah, you know what? Fuck you. I don't care. If you yeah. got it, you got it. I'm all in." You right, know? right. Like I'm never folding. It's Tom Duan. You're capable of anything. That's that. Right. That play was extraordinary, though. Maybe it's certainly among the best coolest plays ever i mean Dwan leveraging barry greenstein overcalling the flop is so incredible you know by the way um i've seen greenstein talk about that hand because we've really critiqued greenstein pretty hardcore so in case everyone doesn't know what i'm talking about i'm, re- I'm assuming everyone knows the hand greenstein has aces i think he raises under the gun something like eight mm-hmm. people see the flop seven people see the flop Dwan is immediately to his left has queen 10 east gates in the big blind with four deuce the flop is 10 deuce deuce um, Barry bets Dwan raises queen 10. Uh, Eastgate flats the whole thing. Barry calls the whole thing. And we've always killed Barry because on the turn, some brick comes. Dwan bets really big and Eastgate folds trip deuces, then Barry folds aces. We've always killed Barry because we said if Barry calls the flop, that means he's doing it because he thinks aces are good. So how can he fold the turn when there's no new information except Dwan bets again? That doesn't really make any sense. 
Um, Barry has since t- at least talked about it and said he was trying to hit an ace on the turn. He was trying to hit the two outer, and that's why he called. Um, I imagine he wasn't Did getting... Did he have the right... How could he? The right odds for it's that? It's like impossible to have the right odds for that, right? I mean, that sounds like revisionist history. That sounds like that David Benjamin bullshit where he said, like, yeah, I knew that I knew that Doyle had a worse hand than me and Daniel had a better hand than me, and I was going right. to get the worse hand to call and the better hand to fold. Well, like, here's that, the thing. Which did happen, but obviously Benjamin could not have intended that. If that's true and that was what Barry was doing, it exposes him as a bad poker player in another way. That's all. Like, one of the two ways he's exposed, right? Either... Either he's lying and he thought aces were good and then changed his mind for no good reason, which is just cognitive dissonance that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. Um, or he doesn't care that he's not getting the, a good enough price. Maybe he's thinking like the implied odds are quite good too. He assumes Duan has either tens full or a deuce, but mostly tens full. So he thinks if he hits his ace, he gets it all. That must be part of what he's thinking, actually, right? Which isn't crazy. They had to be, they had to be really deep then. Yeah, I don't know if they were deep enough. Worth the two outer. And I... Yeah, because Juan raises. I don't, I don't know if he... But at least it's probably closer to being a reasonable price. The fact, though, that also is Barry raised preflop and there were a million callers, which isn't great because usually someone else is going to have at least one of your aces if there's going to be all these callers, yeah. right? Maybe both of them are dead when there's like six callers. Um, as opposed to like you raise and no one calls or two people call or one person calls. Now there's... Right. there's so that not to say that that's a reason enough not to do it in terms of like you don't eliminate your outs, but it does knock some of them potentially out like... When people call, they're calling with particular kinds of hands, and an ace with another card is you is like a big part of that range, right? Right. Yeah. So Eastgate said about that hand that he had bought in for five hundred thousand, and that he would have just put the money in if he had bought in for two hundred thousand. Right? right. That was what he said. He probably right. Dwan probably doesn't make the play if Eastgate was shorter. Is I my think guess. that's right. I think you're exactly right. I think as soon as Eastgate calls the flop, Dwan's done with the hand if they're if they're shorter. But when Eastgate only calls, Dwan's like, well, he doesn't he doesn't have tens full unless he has quads. It's going to be really tough for Eastgate. There's one combo of tens yeah. full um, and one combo of deuces. And otherwise, it's just going to be really hard on him when Barry's behind him still, you know? Right. When he has like infinite combos of any deuce, as we see, he has four deuce off because he was getting such a good price in the big blind. Yeah. It's an incredibly well thought out play by Duan. It is. It, it does. It's impressive. It really seems to be. I still remember Gabe Kaplan talking about it. And he's like, well, Duan's going to have to shut down now that it's been called in two places. And then a break comes and Duan bets like $122,000 or something. And as soon as Duan bets it, it's like Kaplan. And I remember as an audience member feeling the same thing of being like, oh yeah, this is over. And as soon as he bets, it's like, oh God, no, it's not. Like as soon as you see Duan actually bet that amount, it's like, oh, how can these guys call? Even though you think like before yeah. Duan makes the bet, there's no way he's going to be able to get a bluff through. Suddenly it feels no, the like... The Kaplan commentary on that, I remember that really well too, because it actually was... You, you heard him... It sounded genuinely like the first time he had seen the hand, and he mm-hmm. was like genuinely impressed by it. Because when Duan raised yeah. the flop, he's like, I'm not really sure what a good player like Tom Duan is doing raising a flop when there's all these people in the hand with just top pair. That seems like a bad idea. I don't, this is maybe exposing Duan as, as like just a little too aggressive or something. Mm-hmm. And then the turn comes and Duan makes that play, and Kaplan actively changes his mind and says like, oh, I've changed my mind. Actually, there's only one other player I can think of in history who would make this play, and that's Stu Unger. That's what really? Says. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And this is actually, to, to your point about, uh, well, actually, this is something that you, we set off before we started. We were talking about Sahamas and, like, what he was thinking about back when the hand that we're about to do was done. And, like, he was yeah. thinking about blockers or thinking about stuff like that. Tom is clearly thinking, I've got a 10 blocker, so it's really hard for anyone yes. to have tens full. And so, as a result, I can make this play. Because having a deuce may not be good enough. When there's this many people, it's unbelievably hard for anyone to hang on. You know, because, like, I'm just repping tens full so hard here. 
Yeah, I'm getting a little misty-eyed thinking about all this stuff. This to me, this was the golden era of poker. Mm. I assume to you as well, because it's you know relatively soon after you got into poker too. I got in a little later than you, but still, maybe maybe MoneyMaker is more golden era than this, which is about five years after MoneyMaker. To yeah, me, this is golden era. Yeah, no, to me, it's more like yeah, the Raymer MoneyMaker runs are like the real golden era. The high stakes poker was so exciting. It's like oh, like this is what we're really here for, you know, like. So much better, but yeah, it doesn't feel golden era to me. Yeah, it's like Mike Sexton and Vince Van Patten doing like, well, Vince, you know, that kind of stuff back in the day when like the grinder first came on the scene. And actually, a guy who later became a friend of mine, Matt Matros, was on. I remember watching um, the WPT championship, it was like the third WPT championship ever. And he was like, you know, made the final table. And I was like, this guy's interesting and different. And that's all I thought of him at the time. I didn't know he lived, uh, you know, in the same relative. Clo- relatively close to me and stuff at that point. Are you sure that that's later. not around the same time? Like, wasn't that maybe 2006 or something? Um, the stuff, I, no, Matros, I think, did his thing in like 2004, I think, maybe 2005 okay. at the latest, and High Stakes Poker was more like 2008, 2009, I think, I think. It might have started in 2008. It might have started a bit earlier. Maybe I don't know. High Stakes Poker Season know. 1 looks like it was filmed in 1991. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe it's all conflated. But as I, when I think about Golden Age of Poker, for me, it's like where I started, and I started with the WPT and the WSOP. You know, and then, like, to me, High Stakes Poker was like an advanced, cool thing after a little while. Like, finally, we have, like, a great poker show. Because I've been like, I used to set my yeah. TiVo to search for poker to see if there was any poker shows I didn't know about. And I did it, like, every week I'd look. And sometimes there were because there was so much... Poker on TV, and most of it was awful. Like, awful, awful, Yeah, of awful, course. You know? so. High stakes poker was certainly a head, head and shoulders above the rest as far as how good of a show it was at the yeah. time. I mean, it's still the best show of all time, at least cash game-wise. The big game, the big game was pretty good. The big game was really good, too. I don't think anything else even comes close to those two in terms of cash, anyway. Well, I mean, there's, like, the modern, uh, like... Poker Central high stakes games they put together. Yeah, certainly the right. analysis is better at this point, and the play is better at this point. Yeah, but it doesn't have the same like swashbuckling feel. Like the 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 really cool part to me about the high stakes poker era, which to me is the golden era of poker, because it's when I was actually becoming like good enough to be a pro. So that's probably why. But um, it's it's the era where it was the mixture of like the analytical kids with still like the old school gambler types who really honestly do add a lot to the mystique of the game in a way that we've lost in such a horrible way. Honestly, it's bad. Um, but it was, it was fun to have that clear dichotomy and like, be like, yeah, the analytical kids are clearly going to win over time. And there were mm. people who really thought that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I thought that was really fun too. I, I will say this too, though, like poker's gone in a direction and I understand the direction. I, we're part of it as well of basically showing all the hands, like, Poker Go shows all the hands, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't yeah. edit stuff, but back like high stakes poker was edited, you know, it's like, here's all the good right, hands. Of course. So I think that adds to the swashbuckling nature is that like, everything's exciting. Everything's interesting. Instead of being like a whole bunch of slow, bad hands, like well, nothing's that slow, you know, on high stakes poker ever. I don't just mean that. I just mean like you get a 400, $800 game going right now. You're not getting a bunch of these like guys who are wearing cowboy hats and shit and like acting like old school gamblers and using all of these gamblers only terms and stuff you don't yeah. get like freddie deeb getting I, I, mad about true. somebody saying you're going south and stuff it's like it's not as fun you know i i don't disagree but i th- but i feel like more i feel like if they had if they edited everything and made like the new high stakes poker on uh poker go like really tight so there was like no long like tanks 
and only showing interesting hands, you know, there are whales who still play and like, it would probably be a yeah. lot more fun to watch. Like it's just like really yeah. slow. And this is, this is how it, this is how poker is now these days. Cause we want to see all the hands in theory so we can get the whole story. We can get the whole feel of it. Um, but man, and cash games especially, I don't know if it's necessary to show all the hands. <laughs> now that I think about it, like no, I agree. Like tournaments make what more I think sense. is what what happens is what happened, I think, is the people like us got what we asked for. Yeah. And it ended up not being as good as we thought. It's kind of like what happened with social media. Like social media seems so great. And then it turns out actually there's a fuck ton of problems with this yeah. that we couldn't see at the time. And with showing every hand what we which we are certainly guilty of on our own very own show yeah. um, that we do every week. I understand why the players like us back in that time were like, if they showed every hand, I would learn more and understand more instead of right. just seeing the flashy things. Right. But you lose a lot of the entertainment element as you're talking about, and you lose a lot of the audience and you, you take poker away from being a spectator sport into a, a thing that like when you show every hand, you're it's for the people who want to get better at poker and play poker, not people who want to watch poker only. Exactly. Right? So you lose that, and that loses a lot of the mystique and the value of the game. Yeah, and so like as we were doing it, like we got to the point where like, oh, the value of watching every hand, we now have that. We've now captured that. Like, I don't need to yeah. see every hand anymore. So now I want to just go back to be entertaining. But I mean, YouTube makes it better, so at least I can fast forward through stuff pretty quickly. You know, I can click click my arrow button and go ahead five seconds or whatever, you know, instantly. And so that that helps with some of this stuff. But still, it's like. It's pretty rough because of that. Yeah, I mean, I miss the days of like the EPT, not where they showed every hand, but where they should, you know, like really nice, fun, tight, hour-long episodes. They showed a oh, yeah, lot. Like they'd have like uh, 10 44-minute episodes, you yeah. know, after you subtract commercials, and it was super fun. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And there was not that much fluff in there either. You know, there was like a little bit of interviews, a little bit of going yeah. around the room and showing all the chicks because they love showing all the women and having Joe Stapleton comment on them. Uh, in sort yeah. of inappropriate ways, looking back now at the time, it didn't feel nearly yep. as strange as it does now with the 2020 lens. Um, they love doing all that kind of stuff, but still it was mostly the poker and they did a good job, you know, telling stack sizes, you know, reporting the bet amounts, getting, getting a feel of what people are saying and the personalities. They did a really good job with all that. And Hardigan and Stapes were really good, are really good, but we're really, And it was really super, good. super high production quality. Yes. Which you, we don't get entirely that in the live games because there's so much human error that goes on when oh you're doing God. the whole thing. I mean, if you just watch, for example, any episode of Poker Time, we make fun of yeah. the interns about, you know, the camera angles and sometimes the stats and, or like the action getting put up incorrectly. And yeah, that's just all production errors. And, you know, like you could probably get rid of all those and redo it and do a great job, but it's going to cost a lot of money, take a lot of time. And, you know, since we can just make jokes about it, it's way better, um, <laughs> way easier to deal with. Right. Um, yeah, it's hard. And you'll see this on Live at the Bike all the time on Live at the Bike where they're like, they get to the river and Andy bets 50000 They're like, oh, it turns out Israel, Israeli run actually doesn't have $6,000 behind him. He's got $60,000 behind him. And it changes yeah, the entire yeah. fucking hand. And everything we thought about it, like, suddenly really matters. And yeah, they just, like, there's so much that happens incorrectly with production stuff right now. Um, I mean, that's what happens, I guess, if you get, like, I mean, I'm going to include us in this, like relative amateurs trying to put together uh, TV level productions, you know, like you're going to have all sorts of mistakes, you know, and like and and like we're not willing to put just like live with the bike, too. We're not willing to put in the the amount of work and money and time to frickin make it super clean and super perfect. Like we're like people are willing to watch every hand. Great. Let's just get it out there and move on to the next one. You know? Yeah, exactly. 
And uh, yeah, so the golden age is, is gone, Jonathan, and we yeah. should weep tears of nostalgia for it. As I'm sure people like Dwan are and, and Sahamis are, we were actually talking about this before, how like, I, I don't think I fully understood how much of a money printing service online poker was for these guys in the, like the Galfon, Dwan, Zygmunt realm of players back in 2007, 2008, where they're playing with hundreds of thousands of dollars against just complete whales or even players like Barry Greenstein, who have no idea about the mathematical tactics that these young kids are using that clearly are better. Like yeah. Galfond wrote an article in 2007 it's called Galfond Bucks, and it's incredibly impressive. It looks like it was written in 2017. It touches on issues of distribution, combinatorics, blockers, stuff that nobody was thinking about back then except for these select few. So it's really like they had the keys to the kingdom back then. I mean, Galfond was also just absurd. Galfond in that article also spends a lot of time talking about EV and range versus range as opposed to like hand versus hand. You know, and it's like, yeah. like in the end, like if, if we take these actions and my range is beating your range then I'm ahead no matter what happens in this hand. As long as, like, you know, I'm going to play you enough or, like, play people like you enough, like, it doesn't matter. I don't have to think about it. Like, I just play my range this way. As you play your range that way, if, I have pl- if I'm plus EV to do that, then I win. You know, it doesn't matter about the individual moment or hand or what the turn is, really, you know, in terms of, like, so, yeah, with suck outs or anything. With those tactics versus the lack of those tactics, you can see how players mm. like Gila Liberté and Gus Hansen lost tens of millions of dollars back then to these yeah. kids, right? Yeah, it's of just, course. They just have a better solution, you know? But it's no longer the case, obviously. Poker's gotten a lot more difficult, especially at those levels. And like you said early on, I don't know if we've seen Zygmunt for a while. No. Like the, last, the last public thing I remember Zygmunt being in was when he final tabled uh, an EPT event with like some other, like four of the players were finished somehow, they, which they is were, like not that big of a country. They were three of the final four players actually were finished and they were all wearing those hats and stuff like that and drinking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think, I think Sahamas goes out third in that one actually. Yeah. He also famously got a 12 hour massage on like day two of that tournament and mm. then didn't tip <laughs> apparently. But I guess that's just custom in, in most Scandinavian countries yeah, to not tip for things so. like that. But um, Still 12 hours. Anyway. Probably tip yeah. a little. Anyway, let's get to the hand, shall also, we? Also, do you even want a 12-hour massage? Way too long. All right. That, I mean, you got to be really sore. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this hand was suggested, by the way, by Fed Up with Brick on Twitter. We are the poker guys on Twitter. That is where you can suggest hands. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's clear he's, we know what Brick he's fed up with. The red one. I mean, he's fed up with Brick Tamlin. Tamland. The oh, it's not the red brick that's outside my house that is on the corner and that one. Fed up that with it too. one red brick. <laughs> yeah, I hate that one. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's fed up with the uh, the newsman, Rick Tamlin from Anchorman. Because of how bad Anchorman Two was. I never saw Anchorman Two, so I can't speak to that. Good choice, man. That was a good choice. I never loved Anchorman the way everyone else loved Anchorman. That's part of it for me. You know? I didn't love it the way that the culture completely embraced it, but I did think it was a watchable and, and sure. oftentimes funny comedy. I agree. But, like, I saw Horrible Bosses, too, and I saw ti- Hot Tub Time Machine, too. So, like, I don't have a problem seeing movie comedy sequels of, like, questionable in questionable spots. But, like, I saw both those movies and liked them, the sequels, you know? Well, that seems like a mistake because I... I saw Horrible Bosses 2, and I really regretted that. Really? Horrible Bosses 1 was barely passable. Oh, wow. Anyway. I mean, we're just in different worlds. All right, let's, let's get to the hand. 
<laughs> yeah, let's let's finally get to the hand 20 minutes in. At least this time, most of that time was spent talking about poker. I mean, it's a that's, miracle. Uh, that's unusual. <laughs> All right, so we're playing high-stakes poker. It's 2009 or 10 or something like that. Maybe even later, because it's like season six. Um, maybe season five. There's a $1,600 straddle on in the 400-800 game, and that is by Zygmunt, also known as Ilari Sahamias. I guess I should say that the opposite way, but you get what I'm saying. I'm going to call him Zygmunt for the hand. Yeah, good. Um, Peter Eastgate, recent main event, event winner at the time, is going to limp in the low jack with jack-10 of diamonds. I guess this is okay in a super deep game, but it feels a little amateurish. It does. I mean... If there was a lot of three betting going on, I guess that's a reason to do it because you feel like you're going to get blown off the hand a little too much. And this is a way to like ensure you see a flop. But that feels like, yeah, it feels like 2007 mid-level, like I'm better than amateur, but not really a pro-level thinking, which is not Eastgate. So it's weird. No, Eastgate was actually good, um, but not on the level of the guys we're talking about. Uh, folds around to David Benjamin in the small blind, which is 400 in the $1,600 straddle. He calls with ace of hearts, eight of diamonds. That's probably better to raise also if you're going to play the hand out of the small blind when there's a straddle on. Uh, yeah, probably is. Because now by calling, you're usually going to be four ways out of position to everyone with a bad ace. Like, Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. Elliot Lezra is in the big blind. He's going to he's gonna call the 800 more with the queen deuce off. Fine, whatever. Probably Don't have bad, to kill him for it. Whatever, yeah. Can't be that and now good, we get though. to our, our Finnish superstar, Zygmunt, who is in the straddle. And we've got these limpers, and he's got two nines. Nine of spades, nine of diamonds. Feels like a clear raise spot. How much do you think is a good size? Now, I don't have stack sizes because High Stakes Poker didn't have them. We know these players are very deep. This was the season where they were very deep. Let's see. Um, I think something like 10.5, maybe 11K. Yeah, Sounds we about really right want me. fold equity specifically against Eastgate. It would be great if we could get heads up against one of the players to our right who we mm. have position on. That would be ideal, right? Yeah. That'd be the best it's of us. It's going to be tough to do that. Yep. It's going to be tough to do that. Uh, I Yeah, I feel like something like that, though, is going like, to get rid of the trash. Eastgate almost is always calling, right? Like, he's limping not to fold, usually. And making it yeah. like crazy more than that than this seems just irresponsible with nines, like or any hand really. Like just it's just like I like making twenty five thousand is just seems like a bad play. Yeah, like we're setting yeah, ourselves I mean, up to get crushed and other to get limp raised now and have to fold and awful things. Yeah, so I think we're just supposed to charge pots are straddled pots are probably the most likely limp raised pots in games like this. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think we're supposed to raise this hand and uh, hope that we get heads up, usually with Eastgate, because he's rarely folding, I would think. Hey, guess what? That's what happens. That's uh, fine. Zygmunt does raise. He goes a bit bigger than you wanted. He goes 12,600. Can't, can't fault him for that too much. It's not no. so. It's pretty big. I mean, it's 11,000 more, but it's, you know, whatever. Should Eastgate consider folding the Jack-10 of Diamonds? I mean, this position. comes down to how deep they are, right? If, if Eastgate's got half a million dollars in front of him, I assume Ziggy has him covered. Zygmunt usually had everyone covered. You know, he, he like always had so much money. Then he probably yeah. can't. He just can't fold Jack. Ten of diamonds in position against Zygmunt. And, and the world, by the way, because there's two other guys still. Well, I think this is the same game where Dwan made his famous play against Eastgate because oh. I'm looking at it right now, and Greenstein is to Dwan's right. Hmm. Um, and they're in the same seats that they were for that game. So, there so you that go. means that they're probably about half a million deep. Yep. So he, he has to call with Jack 10. I mean, it's not great, yeah. but he just have to. 
Yeah. So I would Eastgate guess does call with Jack Ten of Diamonds. I would guess that there isn't a hand that Eastgate's limping with that he isn't calling this though. I would think every every his entire he's either calling. I don't think he's folding anything. I think he's continuing with 100 percent of his range. Yeah, because Eastgate's not the type to limp with like seven eight off and hope to see a cheap flop no or way. something like that. No way. And if he's got seven eight suited, he's calling because the, otherwise he would raise himself. You know, he's yeah. so yeah. So Eastgate does call the others fold. Uh, the pot is now thirty thousand dollars already. So that got. Heated in a hurry. Yeah. If you want to get heated in a hurry, check out Hand Warmers by Nitrogen Sports. Mm. Also, Tell them about the Hand Warmers. Hot Tubs by Nitrogen. Yeah. All sorts of heat-related products. Yeah. It's the winter. Uh, it's what's coming. your favorite Nitrogen Sports heat-related product? For me, it's Fire. I really like ah. that. I think they've done a great job with Fire. They've marketed it really well, too. If you notice, like, there's a lot of fireplaces out in the world. They... I, I sort of can't believe how good fire is. Like, it's hot. It burns things. It, it destroys things. Um, it's amazing. You can, you can cook with it. I mean, it is one hell of a product, and nitrogen has done a fabulous job with it. So that's for me. How about you? I mean, that's, that's a clear front runner, but I think what really gets me all kind of, like, sweaty and steamy is the Nitrogen Sports Monthly Poker Guys Tournament. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fire as well. Yeah. With a Y, like Fire Festival, which or, went really well. Or hashtag. Uh, if, you use, if you use the link in the description of this podcast when you sign up for Nitrogen, you get access to that exclusive tournament. It's a damn good deal, Jonathan. Why is it such a good deal? Can you tell me why they make it such a good deal? No one can tell you why, because it's unfathomably good, meaning it's, you could not fathom why it's so good. I mean, it's, I can tell you things that make it good, but I can't tell you why. So one of the things that makes it good okay. is they guarantee 1,000 buy-ins, but we never get more than like 200 players. And it's capped at 300, so that's insane. There's guaranteed massive overlay no matter what. Um, it's a monthly tournament. It keeps happening. They keep doing it. That's crazy, too. By the way, it's a Bitcoin-only poker site, which means you get your money out in 90 minutes. That's just unheard of in this industry. No one gets their money out this fast. They've been doing this for years and years. People get their money. They don't have scams. They don't have issues. They don't have problems. They don't have scandals. It's like a rock-solid poker site. They've been our sponsor for a solid three and a half years. I mean, people don't have problems with them. They, they really crush it. Um, they, they also, really by the way... complaints. There's right. like the... The rare, the rare complaint of like a scheduling issue, but that is always resolved and made up for, and it's never a big deal. There's it's never fine. been any sort of money issues or anything. They're no. way above board compared to especially all these other guys who are operating out there. No doubt. Um, they, of course, also have sports betting and casino games. I mean, they got the whole thing covered, and they invented fire. So, I mean, what yeah. don't you like? It's actually called Atra in the movie Quest for Fire with Ron Perlman, 1982, where he's a caveman. Daryl Hannah's in that. Oh, is she? Does she also call the fire Atra? I don't know. I certainly haven't seen that movie. I have. Wow. You were very young. Mm, I was not born in 1982, but I have seen the movie. So you were very young. By the way, you could have been born in 1970 if you were not born in 1982. Neither was Al Capone. Like, what's your point? I was not yet born. Uh, How's that? that Neither was Al Capone, buddy. He was not yet reincarnated, which that is supposed to happen pretty soon based on my zombie calendar. Your zombie calendar? I mean, we got to get back to the hand, but let's do 30 seconds on this. What is a zombie calendar? Because I don't, I don't You don't have, have a zombie one. calendar? No. It's when um, like historical figures of note, when they are going to rise from the grave. Wow. So can you give me just a few? Do you want to know who's up? You, you want to know who's up? Uh, it, actually, the zombie calendar starts in... 
late November 2020. So it's coming oh, up. Oh, perfect timing, uh, actually. It hasn't, be, it hasn't begun yet, but you want to know who's first? Yeah. They didn't want to start with, with, like, they didn't want to go, like, too far and, like, do, like, King Tut or anything, like, for the first one and be all, like, super big reveal. So first, on November 29th, 2020, <laughs> yeah. we are going to get the rise of Ty Cobb famous baseball oh, player. Fascinating. Now you make it sound like the, the zombie calendar people are the ones who are actually bringing people back. Cause you're like, they had an opinion about who they were going to bring back as opposed to just being like the informational source, like the Oracle on who's coming back. They're actually well, reviving the people. It is That's... called vertical integration and maybe you should take a business <laughs> class. <laughs> Fair enough. Ty Cobb. I look forward to it. Uh, everyone hated that guy. <laughs> like really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, apparently that's true. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. So the plan is just bring back people, pe- you know folks that people next? hate it. It's a, hmm. December 3rd is the next one, and it's that guy. I can't remember his name. It's the guy that was super jealous of Mozart. Oh, yeah, I'm Solieri. Yeah, that guy. By the way, you know, in real guy. life, they weren't. he was not jealous. Just for the movie, they were good friends. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's going to be disappointing for him when he is brought back and everybody's like, so you jealous of Mozart, you little bitch? <laughs> He's like, like, no, I like that guy. F. Murray Abraham did a great job. I, I think it's Salieri, not Solieri. Um, did a great job in that movie, which is a delightful film, by the way. Like Amadeus, really good. Like really, really, really good movie. Worth watching. Oh, okay. Never seen it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like fun and funny and, and pretty great. For, you know, Maybe especially we could, do a Zoom for watch. we could do like a Zoom watch party with Solieri after he comes back and... I'd rather do it with F. Murray Abraham, the actor who played Salieri. Uh, is he alive? Yeah. He's in uh, Mythic oh. Quest, actually, which I know you've seen on Apple+. Oh, he Plus. He, he's the I've old dude. I've seen some of that show. He's the old, you know, oh, I know who that is. story yeah. guy. Yeah, I know that guy. Is. I keep thinking, you hey, know, Mc- right. McDonald's has these new uh, commercials where there's like an old guy doing voiceover, and at the end he goes like, and it's like, it's kind of cool. And I, you know who it is? You know, that's the guy from Succession, right? Oh, is it? I was thinking, I, every time I hear it, I'm like, is that F. Murray Abraham? It might be F. Murray. I, I could see him doing it. It's, oh, it's Brian Cox. Well, I'm assuming it is. I, I heard oh. it, and I was like, oh, it's that guy. Like, I'm pretty sure oh. it is. I don't, I don't know. We'll have to look that up. We're not going to do it now. Um, but either way, those are two good choices for it, for sure. Those are good <laughs> okay, ads anyway. for what they are. But let's get back to the hand. Maybe, maybe it's time to get back to the hand. We'll talk I mean, more about the zombie calendar in a Lord, future episode. Please. We haven't gotten anything interesting in the hand. All that's happened is Zygmunt raised with nines and Eastgate called with Jack 10 suited. It's a half an hour yeah. in. What has happened hashtag, to the world? Hashtag half hour in. Hashtag welcome to the poker guys. Mm. Hashtag Peter Eastgate. All right, let's go. Pot is $30,000. The flop is not one that uh, Zygmunt wanted to see here. It's the ace of spades, jack of clubs, six of clubs. Zygmunt's got nine of spades, nine of diamonds. Yeah. Should he be betting this board? The the main reason to bet is just to make your life easy, right? Uh, yeah. Like, you define the hand. If you check, I mean, you're often... Like, if Eastgate doesn't have anything and he decides to go for it, you may be facing three barrels and fold. Um, we're definitely in a spot where it's hard to get value from worse hands, for sure, by betting. So we wouldn't be doing it for that. Oh, yeah. We'd be... We'd just be, like, defining the hand because we've already built a 30K pot and we want to not lose it. That'd be the reason... And we feel like if we check, we're just going to lose the pot too often, either because we're behind now or because we're going to get bluffed. It's hard. You know, it's not a great spot. Like we, our hand looks actually even a little stronger than it is, but like we're not holding on with Kings probably for three streets either. Most of the time is my guess. No. So I can understand with this hand deciding to bet, 
Like kings, we might decide to check because at least we're beating the jack. We're beating pocket queens. We're beating pocket tens. Nines were like, I don't know, man. It's just like confusing and weird and hard and so easy to get bluffed. It's just not a good spot. I mean, if we're going to have checks, probably the best checks are kings and queens on this board, I would guess, yeah. if we gamed it out a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, some, some monsters, maybe, like aces, you could check too uh, some of the time. I mean, you should be checking, uh, like, your bad aces here, like ace-deuce and stuff like that. Well, I mean pocket aces for I monsters. understand, but I'm saying, okay. like, I think you should have, like, a, like a perfect checking hand, like, which is because it's similar in value to kings and queens, except you block an ace, so it's a little bit better. Um, and it protects your checking range a little bit more, right? You can call down a little more with, an, with ace-deuce than you can with even kings and queens. You might decide to call down yeah. with both, but, but, like... It's like a classic spot of, like, game theory disaster to bet an ace-deuce here. It isn't entirely so. Like, if we bet, we're going to get called by Eastgate. Like, he has a jack. He's not going to yeah. pull for one bet. But we're setting ourselves up to not... It's hard to make a lot of money with ace-deuce if we bet, right? Like, we may get one street, and that's usually it. But by checking, we can get multiple streets because we can be inducing. I agree. Anyway, with nine, Zygmunt does decide to bet. I think probably for the reasons you're saying, a little bit of equity denial, a lot of user-friendliness, I guess, as a way to put it. Like, it's just the easier way to play the hand. It's his board, too. So that's part of it. But again, the game theory stuff is weird with it. But yeah, I think it's fine to bet. I can understand checking, too. But I think I I like betting more. He probably bets more than he had to. He bets 20K into 30K, where I don't Mm. see the advantage of betting that versus half pot um, when Eastgate's probably going to fold the same hands for 15K as he would for 20K, right? Probably. Like, if Eastgate has Queen 10 suited, has a gutter, and decides to call the flop, he's probably calling for 15 or 20. And he's probably folding also yeah. for 15 or 20, is my guess. Maybe 20 does fold out a few more of the gut shots, but that's it. It's, and that's only Maybe. King, Queen, Queen 10, and King 10. Those are the only gut shots that exist. So, I don't know. Like, clubs yeah. aren't folding. An ace isn't folding. A jack isn't folding. Right. And Eastgate doesn't fold. He yeah. does call with Jack-10, although obviously not the most comfortable position with Jack-10 of diamonds on the ace-jack-6, two-club, one-spade board when Sigmund made it 12,600 preflop out of the straddle. I mean, but, as Eastgate, we're really hoping for a check on the turn. <laughs> like, we probably have to yes, pull a lot of turns here. As Sigmund, we're probably putting Eastgate on an ace most of the time, or clubs. Yeah, I think that's right. And maybe the occasional, like we're saying, gut shot also. And, of course, a jack, like... But you think yeah. most of the time it's clubs and aces. I agree with you. Yeah. Pot's now $70,000. That's just a lot of money for the pot to be. I mean, it right is now. to me. It's a lot of money to me. <laughs> the turn is the four of hearts. Never helps anybody unless one of them had ace four, I guess. Zygmunt uh, could have maybe pocket Zygmunt fours. Could have, yeah, I guess he could have that. Zygmunt checks. So yeah. he decides not to keep repping. Yeah. Is this a spot where he has a high-end range advantage and should keep barreling because that's my initial thought because Eastgate has much weaker aces more often than Zygmunt does. He doesn't have as much ace, king, ace, jack, ace, queen type hands. Zygmunt has those hands. Yeah. He's got, Eastgate should be afraid of barrel. Yeah. Um, Well, the thing is this, you have to decide like two things, right? What's the um, ratio of Eastgate's draws to made hands that are aces Number one. And number two, how often is Eastgate actually folding an ace if we bet the turn? I don't know. If, if Eastgate has ace five of diamonds yeah. and Zygmunt bets 40K on the turn, that is a bad spot 
phrase five of diamonds. It's it is probably a bad gonna spot. fold. Let's remember Zygmunt's image is one of like kind of a triple barreling, crazy aggressive dude. So true. That may make it harder for a guy like Eastgate to fold any ace here. I don't know if like if we're, if you true. or I are sitting in this spot, I don't know if I can comfortably say we should fold any ace if if Zygmunt bets again because he is a nut bag compared to like a bunch of other guys. Like if Elia Lezra bets twice, I think probably folding is a good idea. Like we're probably behind way too often. Uh, but I don't know if we are with with Zygmunt. Well, if uh, if Sigmund is getting called by all aces like you posit is possible, then I guess it would be a really bad idea to bet because Eastgate has way too many of those. And if he's calling with them, that's really problematic. I mean, the third barrel, if you have the chutzpah to pull the third barrel, should work against yeah. most of those aces, though. You would think a lot of the time. At the same point, if you're Eastgate and you're thinking about this stuff, like you should have a plan against Zygmunt, right? Like Zygmunt, the guy who's capable of triple barreling for short and putting in massive amounts of money. It's like playing against Tony G a little bit, not as much, but a little bit. Like you have to have a plan when you flop top pair. Like, all right, what am I doing with this freaking hand? Am I Because you don't really want to go call, call, fold very often against a guy like that, right? Because their whole thing is like they make more money off you that way. Like, not, like it, you're, not, you're not like exploiting them by folding the river. They're going to fire the river as a bluff too. So I think a lot of time you have to be like, I'm just going to hold on and hope it works out. Like, okay. That's, you have to do that against Tony G too, I think. Um, sometimes they yeah. kill you. But so it's possible Zygmunt just knows that like now that he's fired once and he's been called, like aces just aren't going to fold against him. Maybe maybe Eastgate's willing to fold, but like if I were Zygmunt, I would assume probably like it's harder for Zygmunt to, even on a triple barrel to get like top pair to fold than most players. That's my guess. That's fair. That's fair. His reputation is certainly well known at this point. Yeah. Uh, by players like Eastgate. So Zygmunt does check. Maybe that's why. Maybe yeah. he just decided like eh, this is kind of a crappy situation in general with nines on this board. Here's the first kind of curious decision of the hand. Eastgate decides to bet, and he bets big. He bets 39K into 70K. Jack 10 of diamonds on the ace of spades, jack of clubs, six of clubs, four of hearts board. It's odd. Like, it feels like the exact type of hand that's just an easy check back, doesn't it? Yep. Uh, I mean, is he trying trying to get kings to fold? Is that what's going on? Kings or queens, yeah. I mean, that... He could be trying to get kings or queens to fold. You wouldn't expect Sigmund to ever fold an ace as played. Nope. Never. You wouldn't expect Sigmund to really have any draws. You think Sigmund, Sigmund would bet his draws again a lot, right? Yeah. Just because he doesn't, know, he doesn't want to check call them. So he's just going to bet yeah. them and hope he has some fold equity. Um, so I don't really understand this, uh, except to bluff out slightly better hands. I don't really know what else he's doing. Well, I could see it being aimed at kings and queens, although, like we were talking about on the flop, kings and queens seem like the perfect checking hands for Zygmunt on the flop. So you yeah. wouldn't necessarily expect him to have all combos that he would raise preflop. If Zygmunt has a point. hand like king-jack also, he might have checked the flop. But yeah. I, don't know that he's, I don't know what he's doing on the turn, but he may not fold the turn anyway. I mean, still with kings and queens, in fairness. I mean, they, they play the same pretty much, right? Um, mm-hmm. It seems, I mean, I, but I guess that does, at least King Jack and Queen Jack are other hands Eastgate could be targeting to, like, bluff out, right? He could slightly better Jacks and Kings and Queens. I mean, he blocks that stuff. Yeah. There aren't that many combos, but there's some. Assuming that uh, Zygmunt raises those preflop, which he's the type of yeah. player who I guess he probably would at least some of the time. I think King Jack almost always. I don't know about Queen Jack, yeah. unless it's suited. Uh, maybe. It's weird. I'm really surprised Eastgate bets, and it wouldn't occur to me to bet here. It seems like a super easy check back 
and figure it on the river spot. You figure you're ahead a fair amount, but definitely not a lot, not a huge amount. And you don't know where you are, and it, you're often not going to fold out better hands, right? Well, it turns out that Eastgate's a genius because Zygmunt calls with nines. Yeah. Well, if you're Zygmunt and you're thinking Eastgate mostly only has clubs and aces, if we bet, we're only going to get called by clubs. But if we check, both of those things are going to are going to fire away. Like all the clubs, all the draws are firing. Even gut shots, if somehow he has gut shots, right? They're all going to fire. And still his aces may fold, may, may bet also, excuse me. Um, now at least the, there's a bunch of the range that we're beating if we check. So I, I kind of yeah. get Zygmunt check calling here. It's not crazy to me. From a very pinhole view, I agree with you. But from a distribution perspective, it seems like a mistake. Mm. Well, we don't block anything that we would want to block. I mean, sorry, we, we don't block anything that we don't want to block. Meaning, like, we don't have clubs. We don't actually have any gutter-type cards in our hand. We don't have a 10, a king, or a queen. So from that point of view, too, actually, like, this is a pretty clean hand to use as a bluff catcher in that way which has got to move us up and the distribution. I guess if you didn't expect Eastgate to bet a hand like he has, you can't, you could make the argument that this is a better hand to call with than Kings because they're yeah. against, we're losing to the same parts of the range and Kings block the gut shots, which we don't want to do. I think, I think that's what he's thinking. Like exactly that, that that'd be my argument that this is like one of the better bluff catchers as a result. Like the best bluff catchers probably like, I mean, if we're not going to have an ace in there, which I don't think we should, uh, like jack nine suited or something like that. That's like, we're even slightly better. But the, and then we block a jack. Some, we block jacks full or whatever. But like, a, you would think a, a jack nine suited and nine should play the same. They don't, but they should play the same here. Yeah, I, they do not. Somehow. I guess they're both, they're both losing a jack 10 anyway, but it, it feels really, you know, you're blocking different things. You're blocking even a little bit more, I guess, with jack nine. So I guess it's a little better. I guess I get it from that perspective. It's just, it's also just such a vulnerable hand. A lot of the hands that are currently bluffs are going to get there against you on the river with this hand when you have nines. Yeah. Also, Eastgate, like, limp called and then called the flop. Like, he really has something. Like, he doesn't have air here, like, kind of ever, right? Like, we don't think he's floating on this board, on the ace, jack, x, two club board. No, he's, he's got not at floating. Least, he's got at least one of those gut shots, like you said, and those gut shots have a ton of outs against us. Yep, and they're going to make our life hard, If, by the way, if they miss. By the way, if yeah. he hits, we lose. And if he, um, if he misses, he's almost certainly going to barrel like crazy because it looks like we've got kings or queens, right, when we check again. Or a bad ace, and like maybe he can get us off those things. Like In his mind, he may be able to get us to fold 100% of our, of our range on the river when he misses, you know, if he bets big enough. Um, so it's a tough spot in terms of like deciding to call because you set yourself up for a lot of like often we're going to be facing a bet on the river unless this game makes yes. a pair and beats us and checks back. But that's not good either. Right. Turns out he has a pair. No, that's not. It's not a result that we want. Yeah. Anyway. But if, he has, if he has king 10 and rivers a 10, he's just going to check back and we're going to lose or he's going to bluff and we're going to lose. It's all the same. So I guess I understand the reason that Zygmunt chooses this as a bluff catcher, but I also don't think it's necessary. I think it's okay to let this go. It's just a pretty bad hand on this board. Maybe against Dwan, it makes more sense, or a player like that. But Eastgate doesn't, especially in this game of high-stakes poker, doesn't show himself to have, like, too many loose moves, you know? He's not really that guy. Yeah, if it's, like, Matt Kirk, guys who are going to absolutely float, you know? Guys who are going to do weird things and show up with super weird hands, you know, suddenly they have four or five. They've, oh, I had two back doors because I had the four or five of hearts, you know, or whatever. Something weird like that. Yeah. Fine. But Eastgate's not that guy. You're right. Eastgate's like, 
reasonable ranges, reasonable thought process, playing pretty straightforward, give or take, you know, like, I mean, he limped with Jack Tensuda to call the race. I mean, like, yep, that's kind of the hand you'd put him on. Like, that's, that's part of that limp call range, right? It's nothing weird yeah. is going on here. Um, so I think you're right. I think that makes me want to fold a lot more, even though Eastgate is going to have, I don't know if he has gut shots or not, but he certainly has clubs, which is probably going to play just like this. Um, but is that enough? It's probably not enough. Right. No, because he's got also probably would play many aces like this. They're all suited, I think, the aces, right? Yeah. So that knocks down a bunch of the combos, but still, it's like all the suited aces, maybe almost, maybe almost right. all of them. So, yeah. 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 By the way, Isuke could also have a monster. He could have a set of sixes, right? Yes. Like, could have a set of sixes. He could have ace six suited. He could have ace-jack yeah. also. Ace-jack is not yeah. impossible. So not that's impossible. not great. Less likely. Less yeah. likely because of the limp, but yeah. still. I mean, sixes makes a lot of sense. Sixes feels like and when, he, when he bets this much, he can still have aces too, but it's like, he probably, like is he really going to bet ace-seven suited against Zygmy? I don't even know if he would bet ace-seven suited, but sixes he's definitely going to bet, right? Like Turns out he would since yeah. he bet jack-ten. But To be fair to Zygmunt in another way, like he may assume that, that Eastgate is checking back a lot of his weaker aces here. Yeah. We, we, we spoke about it as if Eastgate's always betting those, but if I were Eastgate and I had ace eight suited, I would probably check back and just yeah. put my, put the blindfold on and put the chips in when Zygmunt bets the river, you know? I mean, it like, makes more sense. Plan. You're setting yourself for game theory disaster stuff. You're like, cool. He's going to check fold Queens. I'm only going to get one more street out of Kings, Kings and Queens anyway. And if he has air, I got to give him a chance to bluff. Like, why would I bet ace eight here? Like, it, it feels right. like a pretty straightforward check, actually. I agree with you. So now we're down to, like, pocket sixes and aces up. So now there's not very much value, but all the draws are still there. So now, now if, and we don't block any of the draws. Now it feels like we have to call a Zygmunt, if that's true, if that first piece is true. Yeah, but we can go in circles forever, because that said, we do know as the audience that Eastgate bet Jack 10 suited. So well, who the now, hell knows what he's doing with those aces anyway? Now that we know that, it feels like he's definitely betting all the aces, and now it seems bad again. But without knowing that, it feels like, I, I mean, sitting in Zygmunt's seat blind to everything, I understand why he calls and think it's probably right to, based on his current amount of information, what he's probably guessing about Eastgate. If he's like, Yeah, that's fair. You have like ace 10 suited plus. I mean, there's just not very many combos of value. Right. And you had to limp it too, which is not as common. Right. So, so yeah. maybe you don't have ace 10 suited even. You yeah. Have like ace six that's suited. Fair. That's fair. Pocket sixes. So once again, like, uh, I, think, I think maybe this happens in like at least 30% of the breakdowns. It really comes down to what you think of the player. Yeah. What Zygmunt thinks of Eastgate and how he's going to proceed with hands like that. But in this case, Zygmunt decides Eastgate doesn't have that many aces or he has enough draws that don't have enough equity against nines that it's worth a call because Zygmunt does call, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, seems ambitious, but I guess if you look at it in the right light at the right angle, it's pretty, pretty good in some ways. Yeah. I mean, if we think Eastgate is tight enough to only bet that strong value range, then it's probably a good call. If we think he's not, if we think he's going to bet a wider range, then this can't be good. Right range of yeah. value, I mean. It just can't be good. And we don't know what happened. We don't know if he was betting a wider range of value or if he was trying to bluff us. We have no idea with Jack-10 if that right. what was the case. <laughs> right. Like, if he had Ace-4, or Ace-4 is a good hand, actually, because there's a 4 on the turn. If he had Ace-5, is he checking that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would be interesting just to know what Eastgate's intent was with this bet, because I, I just don't know. Mm. Anyway, he's in this great spot with 148000 in the pot. 
His opponent has two outs. What a deal. The river is the jack of spades. What an even better deal. Yeah. Eastgate now has trip jacks. Feels a lot better about the hand now than did on the turn. I mean, once he gets called, he's like, okay, I'm definitely losing. It's 100% now that I'm losing. Right? Yeah. Like, and probably he's just going to check back and give up on most rivers, I would think. Like, he has some showdown value, but like... Is Zygmunt really going right. to hold Zygmunt? Zygmunt loves to make huge calls. Like, there's no way we should try and bluff Zygmunt in a huge pot. Like, I think. But instead, he gets to hit the jack. And we all know this feeling if we've played enough poker of, like, our desires for the hand changing dramatically on the turn of a card where it's like, oh, I really hope he folds because I'm doing a good job representing a good hand. And then the river comes and your hand is actually good. And you're like, oh, I bet he's going to call because how, how could he think I have it? You know, <laughs> well, I mean, just the whole thing of like praying they don't have an ace and they fold and then you get there on the river and praying they do have an ace and they call, you know, it's like, yeah, weird how that happens. But, yep. Well, Eastgate's so got to feel pretty comes. good about getting called here, right? Like when this jack comes, he's got to be like, I'm usually ahead and I'm usually getting called. Yeah, he's got to think that that uh, Zygmunt has a decent amount of aces that he's going to call with at least some of them. Mm hmm. Yeah. So on this jack of spades, Zygmunt checks again. Okay, so he wasn't trying to make a play at it or anything. He really did think he was ahead enough at the time on the turn when he called with the nines. So as Eastgate, we're targeting basically like ace-10 type hands, right? We want to get called by those type hands. Yeah, maybe even some worse aces, but yeah. Like, you know, ace-8 suited so how do type we want hands. to size it? How do we want to size it into 148? I think I want to go like $127,000 or something, 130000 I want a bit really big. I want to polarize Make it look like, like a misdraw. What'd you say? Make it look like a misdraw. Yeah, like I'm just saying, either I got air or I got, or I got you beat, buddy. There's nothing in between. Like, you know, you love heroing, right? You don't mind throwing the chips in. This is probably, you called the turn, you probably have a bunch of hands you're going to feel obligated to call with no matter how I size it. I might as well size it up. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it'll bear out this way from a balance perspective, but from a non-balance perspective, it seems like if we bet really big here, we don't have that much value that we can actually represent, which means we're more likely to get hero called. Mm-hmm. Right? We're rep- we're most like the hands that make sense are sixes full and maybe quad jacks. I don't know. Like yeah, and even quad jacks is questionable. Like, we limp jacks, maybe, but yeah. unlikely. Um, I guess once in a while, maybe jacks full of aces also, maybe, but that also seems questionable that we're going to show up with that preflop. There's not much huge value here. Right. By the way, if we had sixes full, it would have been a set of sixes on the flop, which was an ace high flop against a big raise preflop. We're going to raise that on the flop a decent amount of the time, too. Yeah, we are. Not always against Illery, though. Illery might, like, call in position and let him fire away like crazy on turns and rivers if he's going to have a lot of triple barrels. He's a guy we're going to slow play a little more against, I think. Fair. All of this says, though, that, like, this is a great opportunity for Eastgate to, to bet, and no matter what he does, it looks like a bluff, basically, because, like, how can you really have that strong of a hand on this run out? How did you bet a jack on the turn? Yeah. How do you have sixes full? Like- I mean, it sounds... It's, it, Maybe we should bet more than I'm saying. I said like 127,000. Maybe we should be betting 165,000 or 200,000. Um, you know, because Zygmunt has a calling hand. We know that. He's got a bluff catcher at least. Like, let's let him bluff catch. Maybe I'm underselling it by betting, you know, 80% of the pot or at 90% of the pot. Yeah, I think maybe you are. Eastgate instead bets smaller. He bets 85K. So I don't, like I don't this. know. 
I hate that bet. Seems too small. Like, it really looks like value. Zygmunt might be able to get away from some of the, like, the slightly better hands that, that were called, that, you know, like queens and kings. When Giesgegen bets 85K, it looked like they're, it's begging for a call. I don't mean, whatever. You can always talk, you can level yourself into anything, obviously. You could say, well, he's betting small to make it look like I want value, but it's really a bluff. Like, okay, sure. But like, on the, for the most part, when, when Eastgate bets smaller, he's going to want more calls because of the odds he's giving Zygmunt, and he understands that, and so does Zygmunt, right? When Eastgate gets bigger, he's going to want more falls and be more polarized, right? So like, I just don't like this because any value hand that Eastgate's betting that isn't polarized has Zygmunt crushed, like almost always. Zygmunt, I mean, what's the worst, ga- what's the worst hand Eastgate is betting for value here when he bets 85K? That's a good question. I guess it's if we disregard how he got here, yeah. like, and just assume all hands are available, it's okay. probably a jack. Right. But if we forget about that, if we assume he can't have bet a jack on the turn very often, what's... Yeah. The, um, I mean, is it like... Does he ever have, like, ace-8 or ace-9? Doubt it. Seems unlikely, right? So he's just got a really strong range here when he bets at 85K, so we might as well frickin' size it up and make it really look polarized and, like... I just don't see. How, I just think we're getting the same percentage of calls, or close to it, at least. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I like that thought process. Although, to be fair to Eastgate, it's not like a tiny bet. You kind of are making it seem like a tiny bet. It's more than half the pot. Yeah. Right, but that's true. You're right. It is, but it's not like it's forty k into one forty, right, or one forty eight. Yeah. It's eighty five. But there's just an opportunity here to like put another $50,000 or $80,000 into this pot right now and get called at a very high rate of uh, almost the same rate as the first 85 you put in. So like, I think we should be trying to take, do that, like take advantage of that. Like right now. I think I agree. Nonetheless, he bets 85 Hmm. and now Zygmunt's in the spot. How should he think about this, this spot with two nines here? I mean, just like we're saying, Eastgate is so polarized. Like what's his value? If we don't think he's betting a jack on the turn, what's his value? It can't really be aces full. It's like sixes full, right? Is that it? Yeah. It feels, it feels like, like sixes full is the only thing that makes... Is, Unless the thing that jack. makes the most sense is sixes full, but we obviously can't give him all three available combos of sixes no. full because he didn't raise pre-flop and he didn't raise on the flop. And same thing with ace-jack, which also could yeah. maybe be a hand, but he didn't raise pre-flop, he didn't raise on the flop. So there aren't that many of the... I mean... And yet, as Zygmunt, we're sitting here, and we don't block clubs, and we don't block the gut shots, and we gave both those just enough rope to, to fire. Like, we bet small enough on the flop that they might call. Clubs, for sure, would call. And maybe the gut shot's too in position this deep. They probably do. And then just feel like they have to fire a turn and have to fire a river at least some of the time. They're all firing the turn, and some of them are firing the river, right? Yeah. So, like, I understand why if I'm Zygmunt and I decide to call here, even though it seems nuts, uh... Just because he has so little value, it seems. But maybe he has all the jacks, and actually he has lots of value. But it seems like he doesn't have much value at all. I'd yeah, want to call. I mean, based on our conversation, I think I'm with you. I think it, this is a call, even though upon first inspection it doesn't seem that way, but after kind of breaking it down. Now, the problem with this is that we've clearly mislabeled Eastgate. We don't understand what his ranges mm. really are. We're, yeah. we're assigning him a certain type of play that he is not part of, right? Because... If, as Zygmunt, we think that Eastgate does play plenty of jacks like this, there's no way we should call, right? Yeah, if Eastgate's got jack-9 suited plus here, then, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Like, that's a real problem. Now there's so much more value, and the, and the bluffs stay the same. 
They're, 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 the bluffs don't increase at all. So that's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's weird. It's weird to be this wrong about Eastgate, you know? It is. Well, Zygmunt is this wrong about Eastgate because he does call. And I imagine it's for similar reasons to what we laid out. Yeah. Um, he's, he kind of has he's like probably your... pretty shocked. He's probably pretty shocked to see Eastgate's hand, right? I mean, he makes a face when he sees it. And I believe the face is, how did you bet the turn? What are you doing betting the turn? That's what I think the face is. Like, what a terrible idea to bet the turn. And, you know, I'm never paying off if you don't bet the turn, you know. Like, yeah, you know, I guess. Like, all right, you don't get three streets, I guess, if you don't bet the turn. Like, maybe you get maybe you get a river street, but, like, you should be checking that and then betting the river. Like, what are you doing? Like, how ridiculous that you get all this extra money out of me. You know, I think that's what the face is. Which is fair. Could be. I would feel the same way. Like, come on. I would, too. And, I, I mean, it really, like, to assess Eastgate's play, it really is tough to understand what he was thinking on the turn. If he could give us a really good nuanced explanation of why he bet the turn and how it actually makes sense, I, w- I could respect it a bit. But at this point, it feels like he's just clicking buttons a little bit on the turn. Um, my best answer, and this is not a good one, is he is raising a lot more of his... He's not limping very many aces preflop. So this is one of the better made hands that he has. And he's got to balance his bluffs with something. So he's balancing with the jacks to have some value. But the problem is, okay. is it really value, right? Yeah. I mean, he happened to get called by a worse hand on the turn, but it's hard to imagine that's going to happen too often. I mean, do we, when, when he got called, what percentage of the time did he, in his mind, did he think he was ahead, right? Oh, yeah. He definitely didn't think he was ahead. He's like, maybe 5% of the time I'm ahead now, now that I got called yeah. on this turn. Like, yeah. Do I want to go for on the river? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It uh, kind of sucks. Maybe I'll get lucky and hit a 10 or a jack or something because this isn't great. Well, he did. He did. He did, and that's, uh, that's how Peter Eastgate won a pot worth well over $300,000. That's pretty cool. That is really nice. Now, for him, he was coming off winning the World Series main event for, you know, whatever, $9 million or $11 million or something like that. But still, winning these pots is nice. These things count. Stuff counts, you know. It does. And uh, I... I'm under the impression that Eastgate kind of walked away from poker not too long after this. Like, he hasn't shown up anywhere. Yeah. And it would seem like if he was playing the main event every year, the coverage would feature him a little bit as a previous winner. I don't recall seeing him in any recent years. Yeah, I think he's moved on. It seems like he's moved on anyway, as a lot of players have for different reasons. Some of them, what'd you say? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Like, some of them move on because the game passes them by. Some of them move on because they get burnt out. You know, some of them just get... It's a soulless profession, honestly. As someone who's been a professional poker player for a long time, like, you know, you're not helping anybody. You're just helping yourself and yeah, taking whole... from other people. It's not, it's not like, I mean, as someone, I used to work with families with autistic children, and then I became a professional poker player. And emotionally, they're very different, <laughs> you know, sure. in terms of when you go to bed at night. Well, that's what the Dan Coleman thing was, right? He retired because yeah. he felt like he was taking advantage of gambling addiction. Yeah, it's predatory. And it, to some degree, it is, for sure. Uh, yeah. And that's problematic for lots of reasons. So I can understand, like, when you have the ability to get out, deciding to get out. I mean, it's not that I don't play poker anymore, although I haven't for a while now because of, you know, COVID. I was probably playing twice a week, uh, you know, at live, twice a week before the COVID thing happened and doing great and very pleased with that. Not have no, I had no intention to play any more than that, you know. Um, 
I don't know. It's a weird spot because those guys, the gambling addicts are going to lose their money either way. But yeah. I guess the question is, are you going to participate in it or not? You know? Well, it's, not, it's, it's more nuanced than that, obviously. I mean, that's only taking one look at mm. it. We've had this discussion before, I think, on the yeah. show. But it is a discussion that deserves a fresh look every once in a while. Um, you know, there's also the element of it, it is a game. It is fun. Yeah. It does have incredible depth to it and requires a lot of uh, analytical intelligence to be successful at. And that's kind of cool, you know? Absolutely. And there's another piece, too, which is the whole world... Like, we, we can sort of, like, put people in buckets of, like, you're taking advantage of gambling addicts, which, you know, maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. I'm not saying there's zero truth to that. But the whole world is basically full of people who make bad decisions for bad reasons and other people taking advantage of that. And that can be, you know, selling houses. That can be selling other products. You know, whatever it is, all the money in the world that gets moved around, so much of it is because trying to get someone to make a bad decision for bad reasons, you know? And this is just another version of that, really. You know, like... Someone who's a lawyer or someone who sells real estate or whatever it is, you know, someone who's like makes, you know, sells cars. Like it's all the same kind of a thing in some way. I don't mean to, they're not exactly the same, but there's, there's some, there's some thread that goes through all of it, which is people who make bad decisions with money are going to make bad decisions with money, period. So like we just get to decide where, which, which sphere are we going to be in where they're, where people are making bad decisions with money. By the way, one of the ways I capture income for myself and pay for my life is, you know, I try and play the I'm smarter than you at this particular thing we're doing game. And other people are playing the same game back with me and I'm right and they're wrong. Like, that's all. Like, but they're, they get to keep my money too, which is important to remember. Like, of course, of you course. know this. But like, I think sometimes it, it makes it sound like there's like a child like with like, you know, $10,000 in his hand. And you just like slightly take it out quietly and walk away instead of like, oh no, I get wrecked sometimes by these people, you know, like. I lose thousands and thousands of dollars to these people sometimes. It isn't Well, yeah, like, the rules of the game are entirely neutral. Like, everybody yeah. has an equal chance at winning when you sit down. That's, that's the easy, clear argument for, like, there's nothing wrong with it. And you could say there's no value being gotten by the loser. Like, uh, when, when you true, sell a car for too much, when you sell a car for too much money, like, at least that person still has a car at the end. Uh, but the... The person who buys the car doesn't have an opportunity to sell you a car for too much money. It's not a equal <laughs> That's game true. the way the poker well, is. Also, like most people play poker, I think, for entertainment, you know, and they like they are ga- people who are gambling addicts are going to be gambling addicts. Right. So they're like looking for a place to like have this experience. Like and so this is one yeah. of the places they have it. And we facilitate that admittedly. But that experience is going to be had like no matter what, like guaranteed that's going to be had. Like, if a poker game doesn't exist, it's not like you're going to not be a gambling addict and not lose all your money if you're going down that road, right? And in order to not make it sound like Dan Coleman is some sort of holy crusader who is Mm. being irrational, I don't think necessarily that's what he's saying. He's, I think he was, he left because, not because he had this moral obligation to leave, but I think a lot of it was like the darkness it brought into him, like the feelings it gave him. It was, it wasn't because he was like, holier than thou leaving. He's like, I just don't like the feeling of it, you know, and that's fair. I imagine if I was playing with people who I felt it was really hurting them to lose the money that they're losing, I would be way less interested in playing as opposed to playing with like, oh, yeah. with like lawyers and businessmen and stuff like that. I mean, when I was playing again, uh, and they're like fine to lose some money. You know what I mean? Like they lose a thousand bucks. It's not a big deal. Like they own restaurants and stuff like that. It's fine. Like they get their Jones on. It feels good. They're happy. They enjoy it. They're happy to be there. You know, they don't feel taken or anything like that. And they know what the deal is. They know that I'm a pro. They know that they're not. They see me win and they're okay with it. It isn't like they're being tricked, which feels important too, actually, to me. You know? Yeah. Whatever. 
So do you feel like uh, what? Uh, the podcast is going on along, but whatever. You can turn it off if you want to. It's yeah. infinite. No, it's fine. Infinite Let's... podcast. Do you feel like there's a bit of an immorality to hiding the fact that you're a pro, as many pros do? Like, not actively, not actively hiding it, but, like, not actively volunteering it? I don't think it's immoral to do that. I think it's fine. Um, a big part of the game is, you know, what information you give out and not in hiding information and bluffing as part of the game. So, actually, I think that's okay. I, of course, and you don't really get that option ever because we're the no. poker guys. And so, like, pretty much any poker game I ever sit down in, wherever I am in, in the world... Like, someone knows who I am, usually. Like, someone's like, oh, it's one of the poker guys, usually. You know what I mean? Also, honestly, the way I touch the chips, the way I talk, I can't help myself. I look like I, I, look like I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to fumble with chips to pretend like I don't know. what I'm like going to handle the chips the way I handle the chips and stuff. So, like, I, I'll correct dealers when they screw up. I'm paying attention to the game. I'm following the action. Like, it's clear I, it's clear I know what I'm doing, you know? Um, I don't think it's immoral to do it the other way, but... But I like not having to pretend. I like not pretending. Yeah. I never had the inkling to, but I know, I know at least some pros yeah. that I'm friends with that like, would certainly prefer people not know that they're a professional poker player when they're playing poker with them. I think in Positively Fifth Street, James McManus early on, one of, like maybe the second chapter even, talks about going and playing in Las Vegas and pretending to be like he didn't really understand what the game even is. It's Hold'em. And then like he wins a huge pot and... Uh, and then he says something. And then he says something to let them all know, like right away, that they've been taken. You know that they've been fooled, and they all think it's funny and great. But he wins. But he basically tricks them into, into like winning some huge pot. And it's like I don't know, man. That's weird. That's a little weird. But I know that's people little... do that. And even that, I actually am okay with that too. Honestly, like even that, it's like all right, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, I mean, it does. Honestly, it seems fine to me to hide yeah. it. Who? A person doesn't deserve to know your aptitude level at the game they're going to exactly. play against you. Right, because otherwise they shouldn't. If, that, if people really understood my aptitude and understood their aptitude, most of them wouldn't play against me, right? Except the people who clearly were equal or better than me. Like, they, why would they ever play against me? But that's not the way. But they, they understand that I'm probably... Like, I have guys who I play with, you know, who absolutely at least talk to me and say things like, oh, you know, you're obviously a pro, you're blah, blah, blah. Like, ask me questions about, like, if they should have played a hand one way or another. And they're being sincere. They're not buttering me up. You know, they actually want to know if that was good or not. Um, like... That's, so they, they have some sense of it, but I don't think they get like how much money they're losing per hour either. I think most of them aren't tracking it, you know, and I'm no, tracking I, but to the dollar how much I'm making per hour, of course, you know. It's a, certainly a human psychological element that, that bears itself in poker where losing players almost never know how much money they're losing, right. it seems, because they don't want to know. They don't want mm-hmm. to track it, so they can tell themselves whatever story they want. I also think it's different like cash games and tournaments where tournaments like once you've bought in, it's done. And so then like it feels somehow more fair. Some of cash games, it's like a constant suck on someone's wallet potentially. Like, I've certainly been in games where guys just keep reaching in and pulling out another $2,000. And it's just like I can't, it's like oh, never yeah. ending. And it's weird. It starts I've to never, feel like most of you who listen a lot know that I'm more of a, like when I was a full-time pro is mostly tournament pro, not as much of a cash game pro. And my personal experience has always been that the tournaments feel less soulless than cash games to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just because they have an inherent narrative that gives them a bit yeah. more life. Um, and it's also the lack of people pulling money out of their pocket over and over again. And people seem to not get as like depressy playing tournaments. Like they get angry when th- things happen to them. But I feel like in cash games, you see more kind of like depressy type behavior of people who just keep putting money on the table. 
Yeah, I mean, well, because in cash games, it's like you're part of the narrative for the cash game is like my whole life of poker or like the last two months. And like in tournament, it's like a fresh beginning, you know, and it's like I could just do well tonight and it takes care of everything. And that's almost never going to be the case in a cash game if you're down a lot. Like you can't really make it up in one night usually, you know, or for some of these guys. What did you say? Unless you're Mike McD. Mike McD. Yep. Mike McD did it. Although it took him. Yeah, it took him like what? It was like 29 hours and like. I had to get beat up several times. Yeah. But he wanted to do it fair. He didn't want to cheat too much until they caught him. Remember that time they caught him? Yeah. I mean, he didn't want to cheat. No, but that's true. He, didn't, he just wanted to beat him fair and square. It's true. But he, let, he did let Worm cheat multiple times for him. Once in a while, he turned it down, but mostly he let Worm deal him like coolers and stuff too. The thing he he was definitely doing the I'm not a pro thing in that scene though he was the like oh, I'm the guy at the bowling alley what's yeah. this game never heard of it before that thing. yeah 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 for sure yeah I feel like these days too like the way people talk about themselves is like it's so normal for like people to like talk themselves up even say like oh yeah I'm good at poker like no one takes that seriously if they don't already know that you're good at poker they would assume you're just an yeah. idiot who says that like that just means I like poker I'm not doesn't actually mean you're good right like. You know what fold equity means, you know? Right. That type of thing. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, that was a wide-ranging one. And somehow yeah, it, somehow it all st- stayed pretty much within the realm of poker. Usually when we have a lot of, like, external activity away from the hand, it's about something completely unrelated, like we've created an alien world or we're discussing the laws of immortality in a fake world that we've created or something like that. Yeah. But somehow we stayed in the poker world this time. So congratulations to all of you for listening. Yeah. Way to go. Give yourself a hand. Music is my sunlight, and all I need is one mic. And I can show every single MC how it's done right. Every time I come by, I'm bound to leave them so tired. I'm sipping on liquor, a quitter is what I'm not. We got one life, and I took a minor break, but I'm back to claim the throne. I'm gonna be traveling the globe, we still have time to make.